We turn in the Holy Scriptures to Psalm 5. Read together the fifth psalm. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is very wickedness, their throat is an open sepulcher, they flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God, let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice, let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. On the basis of this psalm and the rest of God's word, we consider the instruction of the Catechism in Lord's Day 45, continuing this Lord's Day's introduction to the holy art of Christian prayer. We will consider question and answer 117. Question asks, what are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? First, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only, who hath manifested himself in his word. For all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer as he has promised us in his word. Beloved in the Lord, in prayer, God's people assume different bodily postures appropriate to the occasion and to the holy art that prayer is. We're familiar with that. We look through the scriptures, we see that God's Old Testament people and the early Christians of the apostolic age usually stood while they prayed to God and lifted their eyes up to heaven. We read of that in Psalm 5. And along with the lifting of their eyes, also lifted their hands toward heaven. And the purpose of this bodily posture was to express and to visibly manifest the inward attitude of their hearts toward God. Standing was a sign of reverence and readiness. Picture the servant of a king standing before the king in his court, ready at a moment's notice to do the king's bidding. Lifting up of one's hands and eyes towards heaven was a visible expression of trust and dependence upon the God to whom we pray. Another common posture of prayer we heard in the call to worship. 
Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, bending the knee, which is a visible expression of the heart's humility and submission to God. We commonly practice certain postures in our prayers and teach our children these postures. We bow our heads, we close our eyes, and we fold our hands. And that, for the same reason as God's people throughout the ages, it's a visible expression of the inward attitude of the heart, or it ought to be. We bow our heads. For much the same reason that God's Old Testament people bent the knee. It's a show or a sign of reverence and humility and submission. We close our eyes and fold our hands as an expression of devotion to God. That he is worthy of our full attention. And that we will suffer nothing to intrude upon that sacred conversation with God in prayer. And this is good. Such posture is good and proper. God has made us body and soul. And the whole person ought to be engaged in the holy art of prayer. Body and soul. But this posture of our bodies all by itself means nothing if it does not correspond to and express the attitude of our hearts. Or to put it another way, the inward spiritual posture of our souls as we approach the one true and living God and speak to him in prayer. Our bodily posture must be the manifestation of our inward spiritual posture. And that's what question and answer 117 is getting at. What are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? And that word requisites there simply means characteristics. The question is, what characterizes real prayer? Distinguishing it from fake prayer. There are certain characteristics of a true prayer. And this question and answer lays out three of the primary characteristics of what a real prayer is. But now, a real prayer comes from the heart. And so these characteristics of a real and a genuine prayer can be traced back to the heart of the one who prays. And so we can go deeper. And we can focus on What must be true of the heart of the one who prays if his prayer will be a real, genuine prayer? That is, what is the spiritual posture from which we must approach the one true and living God in prayer? That's the question we're going to look at this morning as we continue to unpack the Bible's teaching of prayer. Last week we looked at the necessity of prayer, why it is so important, necessary for the Christian to pray. And now we will be given helpful instruction from the Word of God as to the spiritual attitude of our hearts as we pray. So let's consider question and answer 117 under the theme, the spiritual posture of prayer. And we're going to go through the three main characteristics of true prayer, or the three main elements of a proper spiritual posture. First, truth. Second, humility. And thirdly, boldness. First, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only, who hath manifested himself in his word. For all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. The first part of true spiritual posture in prayer, the first characteristic of a true prayer is truth itself. To pray, we must know God in truth. That's the point of the catechism. We must know him and direct our prayers to him alone. You can only pray to a God that you know. And you can only pray to a God that you know in truth. If you don't know him in truth, you don't really pray to him. That's what all prayers to idols are. They are prayers to false gods, or they are prayers to the one true God, but 
not according to truth. Last week we saw that prayer can be simply defined as faith talking. Prayer is faith talking to God. And remember what faith is. Faith is certain knowledge and assured confidence. A genuine prayer arises from certain knowledge that is true, firm knowledge of the one true and living God. Faith knows God. And prayer prays to the God who is known. Known in the glory of his being, in his adorable attributes as the eternal, almighty God. Prayer is not speaking to a God of our imagination. It's speaking to the God who is there. and Speaking to him as he really is. And so that brings us to the question, how can we know God? And how can we know God as he really is? It is true, and scripture makes clear, that we know something of God from the creation. Romans 1 makes that clear, that in the handiwork of God, We see something of his invisible attributes, his Godhead, his eternal power. And the creation itself testifies that there is this one true God who ought to be worshipped and thanked. And therefore the testimony of creation is sufficient to hold all men without excuse. Man cannot exclude or excuse his unbelief. The creation everywhere around him testifies there is a God. But now, to pray to God as the God you know personally, As the God of your salvation requires more than creation. The testimony of creation does not reveal a saving God. Creation reveals an almighty God. And reveals the wrath of God against the unbelief and ungodliness of men. To know God as a saving God. As a God of the covenant of personal warm relationship of love, mercy and grace. To know that God you must have The word of that God. And that's what the catechism emphasizes here. When it speaks of praying to the one true God. Who hath manifested himself in his word. God shows himself to us in a way that we can understand. In the Bible. In the Bible. We cannot obtain saving knowledge of God by reaching up with our minds into heaven and grasping hold of God. No, God must come down to us and reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. And that's the wonder of the Holy Scriptures. It is the word of the living God, inscripturated in human language, that we can understand. And from which we gain through the operation of the Spirit, true, accurate knowledge of God. Now, we understand, of course, that the knowledge that we gain from the Scriptures is not exhaustive. We can never know everything there is to know about God. The finite can never fully comprehend the infinite, ever Into eternity future, you will never know all there is to know about God. Because your mind is a creaturely mind. And even as a glorified creaturely mind in heaven and in the new creation, it can never fully comprehend the infinite God. We can never know all there is to know about God. And in this life, we can never have perfect knowledge of God. Because our sin so often blinds us. Our sin so often corrupts our understanding. There are errors in our thinking and in our understanding. But nonetheless, from the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, we are given true, accurate, and adequate knowledge of God. So that we know him. We do. We know him. We don't just know about him, but we know him personally as the God of my salvation so that we can address him and speak to him in prayer the way David does at the beginning of Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. My King and my God. Those aren't the words of a man who is at a distance and addresses some deity who is far removed from him and with whom he has no personal relationship. No, this is the heart speech 
of the child of God who addresses the God that he knows personally as the God of his salvation. That's praying to God in truth. It's knowing him from the scriptures. Knowing him as the God of my salvation, as my father with whom I have a personal relationship through the work of Jesus Christ. And that understanding controls all my speech toward him in prayer. A couple of applications on this point. First, let's notice the necessary relationship between prayer and the Bible. Remember the dynamic of us talking with God. God speaks first. Father speaks first. And his speech draws out of us speech in response. That's the way worship works. God speaks and his speech draws from us our songs, our praises, our prayers. So does the scripture. God has given us his word and his word draws from us our prayers. In a certain way, you can say the Bible creates prayer. The word of God comes to us and draws prayer from the believing heart. And so when we struggle to pray, and that's a universal struggle for Christians, for us. The man who never struggles with prayer, one wonders if he's ever really prayed. We all struggle with it at times in our lives. How can we grow? How can we improve in our prayers and in our prayer life? Very practical way is by going to the Bible. Sometimes in our struggles with prayer, the answer is not to talk more, but to listen more. Listen to God more. Absorb His speech. And when we take the scriptures into us, our hearts fill To the point of overflowing. And the overflow of the heart is grateful praise and prayer to God. For help in our prayers, go to the scriptures. To the scriptures. Listen. And in listening, you will find the words to speak. Immerse yourself in the Bible. In its depths. Use a simple illustration. Perhaps some of you have snorkeled before. Perhaps in the Caribbean, in the clear waters of the Caribbean, and you floated on the surface with your face in the water, looking down through those clear waters. And just from the surface, you can see all manner of beautiful fish and coral. You can appreciate much of the beauty of the sea that God has created just by snorkeling. And so it is with the scriptures. We can float on the surface of the Bible. And because it's so clear, we can see so much. It's so beautiful. There are riches. But how much more can you see if you dive down into the sea? You can get up close. You can examine those things. You can see a level of detail that you couldn't see from the surface despite the clarity of the water. Yes, deep sea diving takes more preparation, more effort than snorkeling on the surface. But it's rewarding in a way that snorkeling isn't. It's a simple illustration, but apply that to the Bible. It's easy to be content just to float on the surface. And we can be content because we can see so much from the surface. But go down deep. And there's no end to the riches you find. So it is with our prayer lives. As we dive into the scriptures, there will be no end to the riches we find. Riches that will furnish our prayers with freshness, with joy, with praise, with thanksgiving. And so that's the first part of the spiritual posture of prayer. Truth. Now, a couple more things to notice about that before we move on. We've seen how prayer must be to the one true God. But now, there's another aspect to that. And that's this. Prayer to the one true God must be true to God. It must be true to the God that we pray to. Answer 117, that we from the heart pray. 
Now you understand the point that is being made here. To be true to somebody means to be honest and sincere in your speech towards them. Not feigned, not hypocritical, not hiding things, not holding back, but open. That belongs to the spiritual posture of the Christian's prayer. Not only that he knows God in truth and directs his prayer to the one true God, but that in his praying, he is true to God. He is sincere. He is heartfelt in the words that he prays. What we say to God, therefore, must be the true expression of what lives in our hearts. We must mean what we say. And if we don't, we're lying to God. And there's nothing more foolish or silly than lying to God whose all-seeing eyes penetrate the innermost recesses of our hearts. It's somewhat easy for us to deceive one another or hide things from one another, but you can't hide anything from God. Any insincerity is clearly seen by God. He knows our hearts. He knows if our words don't match with the thoughts and the desires of our hearts. And so in prayer, we must be sincere, not trying to pull the wool over God's eyes, which is an impossibility, which is folly, but sincere, so that the words of our mouths are the exact reflection of the meditations of our hearts. Jesus addressed that during his life in ministry. There were the Pharisees. They loved to pray. They would pray on the street corners. They were good with their words. They prayed eloquent prayers. But they were so often insincere, such that Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 8, that this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They might have spoken words that were true. They might have directed that prayer to the one true God, but their hearts were far from him. They were not true to God. And that's a warning for us too in our prayers. To be sincere. That's why thoughtfulness in prayer is important. It can be so easy when our minds are wrapped up with other things. And this is part of the weakness of our flesh. Jesus' words apply here too. The the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is so often weak so that we pray because we know we have to. And if we don't pray, we'll be smitten in our conscience. So we, we pray those words, we spit them out, but our hearts are somewhere else. Our minds are somewhere else. Perhaps we say things that we don't really mean. God sees that. And that's not pleasing to him. That's not being true to him. The spiritual posture of prayer is that I direct my prayer to the one true God and that the prayer which I direct to him is a true prayer coming from the heart. May God grant his spirit to us that when we pray, when we bow our heads and fold our hands, that we be true to the God we pray to. That's the first part of the spiritual posture of prayer. Know God in truth. And that leads immediately to the second part of the posture of true prayer. Humility. If you know God in truth, you are going to be humble before him in your prayers. The catechism explains, secondly, secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. The spiritual posture of prayer is the soul on its knees. You understand that bending the knee, bowing, though we may not do it very often in our prayers, is a good physical posture. But even if we don't bend our physical knees, every time we pray to God, every time we pray to God our soul must bend its knees in humility and submission before God and His divine majesty. That is the only spiritual posture from which true prayer can arise. Humility. Humility. Before we look at humility, let's 
look at where humility comes from. The second requisite of true prayer is knowing our need in misery, the catechism says. We must know our need, our lowliness, our unworthiness. That in two respects. First, we need to know our need as creatures. As creatures. Simple. God is God. I am not. That's the posture from which we must pray. The proud man thinks in some way he's on an equal plane with God. Or at least he has something that gives him standing with God. And so he can go to God and he can barter with God. He can talk about himself to God and all of the rest. That's pride. But the spiritual posture of prayer is knowing my lowliness, first of all, as a creature. What am I? I am a creature of the dust. God is the eternal I am that I am. I, I'm a breath. I'm a vapor. I'm like the grass that grows and then withers away. Like the flower that blossoms for a moment and then fades. I must see my lowliness and my need by seeing the vast chasm of difference between God and me. It's not that God is here and and I'm right here. God is here and I'm so far down here you can't measure it. There is an infinite chasm of being that separates the creator from the creature. The one only true and living God and the works of his hands. I am creature. He is God. And that must shape how we approach God. That must shape the posture of our prayers. That must put our souls upon their knees. In the presence of his divine majesty. We can pray only when we have a thorough grasp of our creaturehood. And our creaturehood means lowliness and neediness. It means utter dependence upon the God of my existence. To use an illustration from creation. Bird nest. Watch the parent birds bring food to their little chicks in the nest. And what do those chicks do? They're utterly dependent on the parent birds. All they do is sit in the nest and open their mouth and squawk for food. That's you and me in relationship to God. As creatures, we are dependent upon God for our breath, our life. Our existence every moment, we are like chicks who can do nothing but open our mouths wide and cry out to the God of our existence. And the wonderful truth of the gospel is the truth that we sang in Psalter 222 in the last stanza. God says to us, open wide thy mouth of longing. I will satisfy thy need. The spiritual posture of prayer is a thorough understanding of our creaturehood and our lowliness before the infinitely glorious God. But the catechism will have us see more. It's not just understanding our lowly creaturehood, but the catechism says that we must rightly and thoroughly know our misery. You're familiar with the catechism. When the catechism uses the word misery, what's it talking about? Question and answer two. How great my sins and miseries are. Knowing the greatness of my sin is the first part of true saving knowledge. The catechism is talking about sin here. Our humility arises not just from knowing our creaturehood, but knowing our indwelling and pervasive sinfulness. Sinfulness. We are sinners. And our spiritual posture in prayer must be a posture that acknowledges that. Our souls must be on their knees because we are aware that in prayer we come before the Holy One and I, in myself, am utterly unholy. And because I am utterly unholy, I am utterly unworthy of approaching this glorious God. I'm not only a creature of the dust, but in myself I am a sinner and God is the Holy God who cannot look upon iniquity. Thorough knowledge of our misery, our own sinfulness, presses 
our souls to their knees. To their knees. And we see our great spiritual need. Not only are we like those chicks in the nest with regard to our earthly needs, but we're like those chicks in the nest with regard to our spiritual needs. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing. We are utterly spiritually dependent upon the mercy and the grace of this God. And the wonder of the gospel gives us comfort here. That from a spiritual perspective, with regard to our eternal salvation, God says, open wide thy mouth of longing, I will satisfy thy need. The spiritual posture of prayer is understanding, I have nothing of my own except my sins, my debts, my miseries. I am empty and I can't fill myself. I'm indebted and I can't pay off my debt. I'm in misery and I can't lift myself out. I need God. I need his grace. I need his Christ. I need Christ's atonement that pays for my sin. I need his redemption and deliverance to rescue me. I need his righteousness to clothe me. I need God in all of his fullness. That's the right and thorough knowledge of self. That must necessarily be paired with the right and thorough knowledge of God. Knowing God and knowing self. I fall to my knees. In humility. Now we can look at humility a little bit. Seeing where it comes from. My soul is brought to its knees in deep humility before the divine majesty of God. And this sincere humility of the child of God is pleasing in God's eyes. Prayer must be humble. Pride is the enemy of prayer. The proud man cannot pray. He might say things. He might say things that sound good. But the man who prays from the posture of pride doesn't really pray. If you want a specimen of the proud man's prayer, you turn to Luke 18. To the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And there in Luke 18 verses 11 through 13. We are shown what a proud prayer looks like. What praying from the posture of pride looks like. Verses 11 through 13. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What kind of a prayer is that? It's not a prayer at all. He stands praying in the temple. And now, there's nothing wrong with standing to pray. That was common practice. At that time. But the problem here. Is that for the Pharisee. His outward posture. Does not correspond to the condition of his heart. He stood. Not as an expression of reverence and dependence upon God. But he stood in the confidence of his own righteousness. As a proud man who thought he of himself, had the right to stand in God's presence. He had some standing with God. And so he prays thus with himself. His prayer really isn't even directed to God. His prayer is more about him. We don't see a sense of need in this man. All he says is, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other miserable sinners like this publican. Look at the long list of things I've done for you. There's no sense of need. There's no lowliness. This man, his soul, is not on its knees before the divine majesty. He is proud. And though his prayer was long and eloquent, it was no prayer at all. And God was not pleased with it. And God did not hear that prayer. For as 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Psalm 66 verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
That was this Pharisee. Does pride hinder our prayers? To be honest, we have to say sometimes it does. Because pride is ingrained in our sinful nature. And a big part of the daily battle of the Christian life is subduing and mortifying our pride. Nothing is more characteristic of fallen man than thinking he is something. And thinking that the world should bow down to him. And that manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Pride is ingrained in our human natures. We have to wrestle with that lion. But sometimes it gets the better of us. Maybe oftentimes. Our pride may not be as brazen as the Pharisees. But it's there. Think about how it can taint our prayers. Sometimes pride makes us not pray that much. Because we don't feel the need to pray. After all, we're pretty good. We live a decent life. We obey the commandments outwardly. We come to church twice on the Sabbath day. All good things, of course. But it's so easy to trust in those things. And when we start trusting in what we do, we stop praying. Because we don't feel the need to pray. Prayer becomes not much of a priority in the home. There are the things that are more important. More pressing concerns to take our time. We must be on guard against all of the subtle ways that pride can take hold of our hearts and hinder our prayers and our walking with God in prayer. Thorough knowledge of God and a thorough knowledge of ourselves teaches us humility. Humility, which is lowliness of mind and manner, rooted in knowing myself as I really am and knowing God as He really is. And that humility is the only spiritual posture from which we can pray. Verse 13 now of Luke 18 gives us a beautiful specimen of the humble prayer. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. Now again, the point here is not to prescribe for us what the proper bodily posture of prayer is. But what we see in this prayer is that this man's bodily posture corresponded To the inward posture of his heart. His soul was on its knees before God. He understood not only his creaturehood. But he especially understood the misery of his sin. His guilt before God. He's on his knees. And he doesn't say anything about all the good qualities that he has. He doesn't boast before God like the Pharisee does. Instead, his simple petition is, Be merciful unto me, a sinner. Humbleness marks this prayer. He makes no boast. He doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't compare himself with others. It's so easy to do that. Yeah, I'm not the greatest, but there's this person and that person who's far worse than me. Other people don't enter the picture here. He's on his knees before God. Confesses his sin to God, his unworthiness to God. Humility. Humility. The posture of true prayer. And that's the posture that is delightful to God. The man who clings to his sin and pride goes to God in prayer, provokes God's displeasure. The man who humbles himself before God, with that man, God is pleased. Think of the humble prayer of David in Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The true prayer is a humble prayer, and that prayer God will not despise. Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. 
Isaiah 66 verse 2. God says, but to this man will I look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. To put it simply. When the soul is on its knees before God. That soul's prayer will be heard by God. God deals with us as a father. Sometimes he chastens us for our pride by distancing himself. So it seems as though our prayers are not heard. He uses that chastening to humble us. To humble us. So we cry out to him. When we pray in humility, he hears. He hears. We see why that's so important, don't we? If our souls are not on their knees, if we're not praying in humility, we won't see our need for Christ. That's above all the importance of humility. When a man is humble, he sees his need for Christ. He knows his need for Christ. He knows that he has nothing apart from Christ. He knows that without Christ, he will perish. The proud man has no use for Christ. The proud man doesn't see his need for Christ. But the humble man knows he needs Christ. And that's what we see in the humble publican in Luke 18. He brings nothing of his own, but simply cries for mercy. And the gracious God sends him home justified. Truth. Humility. Boldness. The third part of our spiritual posture in prayer. The last section of answer 117. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer as he has promised us in his word. Prayer is faith talking. Faith is certain knowledge. Certain knowledge of God, the one true God. We speak to the one true God. And part of faith's certain knowledge is knowledge of myself, as I really am, which leads to humility. But now, faith is also assured confidence. And it's not just the knowledge of faith that talks in prayer, but it is also the confidence of faith. That expresses itself in prayer. Boldness. Boldness. What is boldness? Boldness is going to God and asking of Him what you need without hesitation, without fear, without dread. Boldness is the assured confidence of faith in action. Boldness is drawing near to God in prayer, bringing our praises, our thanksgivings, and our petitions to Him with the certain conviction that He will hear us, receive our prayer, accept it, delight in it, and grant it according to His wisdom and His will. Praying boldly means coming to the throne of grace, not doubting. Without hesitation. It's coming, yes, with a proper reverential fear of God. That reverential fear which is the beginning of wisdom. But it is coming to the throne of grace not with terror. Not trembling in the sense that we fear that God will consume us or reject us or push us away. It's boldness that arises from confidence. He hears and accepts my prayer. It's assured confidence in action. That's also the spiritual posture of prayer. Even while our souls are on their knees before God. We are not there groveling or cowering. But on our knees we look unto the God to whom we pray. And ask with confidence and boldness. 
See that in Psalm 5. We come back to Psalm 5. In the opening verses, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Stop there a second. This language is so familiar to us that the wonder of it is sometimes lost on us. David, the sinner, the lowly creature, comes to the God of the universe and says, Give ear. Give ear. Listen to me. And he goes on in verse 2, Hearken unto the voice of my cry. How can it be that such a lowly worm as David goes to the God of the universe, the Holy One, and says, give ear? That's bold. And that boldness continues throughout David's prayer. Hearken unto the, vo- unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. There's confidence everywhere in these opening words of David's prayer in Psalm 5. That's the boldness that belongs to the child of God. Boldness that fits perfectly with humility. At first glance, those two might seem contradictory. Bold and humble, but they're not. They complement each other. The Christian is humble as to himself. But he is bold in Christ. The one who we saw last week purchased for us the right to pray. The one who shed his blood to pay for our sins. The one who has obtained for us the adoption of sons and daughters. The one who has secured for us a place in the Father's house and an imperishable inheritance. We are humble as to ourselves, as to our creaturehood, especially as to our sinfulness. But we are bold in our Lord, Christ. Boldness, you must see, is not pride. Boldness in prayer is a manifestation of trust. Boldness is the assured confidence of faith in action. It's a manifestation of trust. Boldness in prayer says to God, I take you at your word. I believe you. I believe that the work of Christ is perfect and that it's fully sufficient to cover all my sins and give me access unto thee. And thus I come boldly, I come boldly to the throne of grace, confident that there at thy throne I shall find mercy. Not because there's something in me, but because of him. Because of him. The source of boldness in prayer is Christ. Thus, Ephesians 3 verse 12 says, In whom, that is in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. When your soul is on its knees before God, Don't think that humility means you must cower. No. Your soul is on its knees before God, but faith's eyes look confidently up to God with expectancy that this God will hear my cry and will grant my request according to his will and his wisdom. The heathen pray in terror. Because their gods are capricious. Their gods cannot be trusted. Their gods will as quickly destroy them as give them what they ask. Not so the Christian. The Christian is bold in Christ. As the catechism says, pray to God for everything he has commanded you to pray for. And what what has he commanded you to pray for? Everything you need, body and soul. Be bold. And so a concluding application. When we're on our knees before God and we behold his divine majesty, let us be humbled. But don't let the glorious majesty of God keep you from praying. You have access through Christ. Don't let a sense of your sinfulness, as important and necessary as that is, keep you from praying. Christ 
paid for those sins and gives you access to God. He is your access to the throne of grace. Sometimes we can think that way. We're so overcome with a sense of our sinfulness and unworthiness that we feel we cannot go into God's presence. How can he receive me, such a wretched sinner? Sometimes that feels pious. But really, we're saying something about Christ. We're saying Christ isn't enough. I can't be bold. I can't go to God in prayer. No, no. The wonder of the gospel is that you and me, fallen sinners that we are, weak creatures of the dust that we are, you and me can go to God in prayer any time, anywhere, in all things, through Christ. Let us not be deterred from prayer because we feel our prayers are inadequate. They're feeble. They're tainted by our sin. Of course they are. But Christ is our all-sufficient intercessor. And our prayers that arise, though they are feeble and tainted with sin, He takes them and He purifies them and He presents them before the Father. And they are well-pleasing in His sight. This Christ liveth ever, liveth ever to make intercession for us. Pray boldly, boldly. In truth, in humility, in boldness, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, Again, we thank thee for the gift of prayer. And we ask that by thy word, thou wilt work in us the proper spiritual posture of prayer. So that we might come to thee and pray to thee the one true God. And in our prayers be true to thee. That we might humble ourselves before thee as creatures of the dust and as sinners besides. And yet nonetheless come with unshakable certainty and boldness that thou wilt hear us. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we thank thee for him and for his work. Hear our prayer and bless us in his name. Amen.